0: Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. This morning, the gospel reading for the Sunday of the second Sunday of Lent, which is today, I'm going to begin just a little bit before where uh, chapter 17 picks up. The context here is that Jesus is with his disciples. They are in the region of Caesarea Philippi, a pagan area um, near the mountain where it is uh, said in the book of Enoch that the first angels to rebel actually fell to the earth and began their uh, rebellion against God. And uh, so this tradition was there among the Jews. And there was an old pagan site there that the Greeks, when they took over the whole land and now that the Romans had it, they kept this site. uh, There was a temple to Pan, this, um, you know, God of the earth and of nature and stuff. And there was a cave in the region where uh, it was said to be. One of the portals into Hades, and so you have this area where, in Jewish tradition, angels are said to have fallen and begun the rebellion. In pagan tradition, you know here's a place where uh, the realm of the underworld uh, opens up into our world, and Jesus and his disciples are walking around here, and Jesus tells them that on this rock, referencing himself, referencing the faith of Peter, his first disciple, he says, The gates of hell will not prevail against the church that I am establishing. The gates of hell being nearby, this cave in pagan tradition. So Jesus is making himself known as the one founding a church that will conquer all of the rebellious angels, conquer all of the pretentious powers of hell. And uh, then he says, but now we have to go to Jerusalem so that the Son of Man can be killed. And Peter steps up and says, forbid it, Lord, that you, uh, you know, go and, and this be done to you. And he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan, that so he calls him by the name of one of these angelic, rebellious angelic powers, thwarting the uh, purposes of God. And then he tells his disciples what it's all about. He says, this is how this is how you have to follow me. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life, his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the son of man is to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he will repay every man for what he has done. Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Okay, so there's the context. Now, St. Matthew tells us, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, who had just six days before uh, really messed up with his words, James and John, his brother. So these are the three um, most trusted innermost disciples. And led them up a high mountain apart. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said, "Jesus," or Peter said to Jesus, "Lord, it is well that we are here. If you wish, I will make three booths or tents, tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah." He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were filled with awe. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So this story uh, obviously is the account of the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain, and we also have this story proclaimed to us in the gospel on the Feast of the Transfiguration on August 6th. So why are we hearing this story again on the second Sunday of Lent? Well, I am tempted to talk for about an hour about this because there's so much packed into this story so much meaning, so many ties to um, various ideas and concepts throughout Scripture. So I'm going to have to do my best to uh, keep it terse <laughs> and to the point. But today we're reading this because this story uh, is actually within a Linton context. We heard that in the context of this, Jesus uh, is... Turning from this northern region of Caesarea Philippi and saying, We have to go down to Jerusalem because we are going to, the Son of Man is going to be uh, put to death. And on their way, this happens six days later as they're traveling south. And tradition says that this happens on a mountain called um, Tabor and within a six day walk of Caesarea Philippi. And so they're heading toward Jerusalem. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, in his telling, we don't hear this, but in the Gospel of Luke, we hear actually what Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah about. It says he's speaking with them about his exodus that he will accomplish in Jerusalem. That's the word in Greek. It's, it's the word for exodus, the name of the book Exodus. And so Luke intentionally uses this term to let us know uh, Jesus is talking with Moses the main figure of the book of Exodus, about the exodus that he is about to accomplish. What does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus is about to do something that isn't so brand new and out of the ordinary, out of, uh, not out of the ordinary, out of the, out of the blue, out of any concept, uh, that, that the disciples wouldn't have known what was going on. In fact, with hindsight, now Luke is saying what Jesus was doing was something that God had already established the pattern for. And we'll see a little bit more about that in a second. But what's also going on here is that when we are moving toward Holy Week, and we get to Good Friday, and we see Jesus arraigned, thrown before a kangaroo court of malicious people who uh, hate him, don't understand him, are looking out for their own good, they throw him in prison, they drag him before um, Roman pagan Gentile rulers, they strip him of his clothes, they beat him up, they nail him to a tree, and then they pierce his dead body with a spear. This is our God that we're talking about. This is, the disciples knew the the Messiah, the chosen one, the one sent and anointed to lead Israel out of bondage, and knowing from you know, our point of view what was going to happen, how do we how would we as the disciples who didn't know at the time, how would we have reacted to this? We saw Peter's reaction when Jesus you know suggested through his language what was going to happen and and he said that can't happen there's no way that that can happen and so the scandal of Jesus' passion and death was going to be so uh, traumatic. It was going to be more than Peter, James, or John could have handled had they not encountered the glory of Christ in this story. So St. Leo the Great says, In this transfiguration, the foremost object was to remove the offense of the cross from the disciples' heart and to prevent their faith from being disturbed by the humiliation of his voluntary passion by revealing to the the excellence of his hidden dignity. Saint Ephraim, the Syrian uh, says something similar. He said that the transfiguration shows that Christ was not helpless but powerful. It shows his kingship before his passion, his power before his death, his glory before his disgrace, his honor before his dishonor. So that when he was arrested, crucified, etc., etc. The apostles might know that he was not crucified through weakness, but willingly by his good pleasure for the salvation of the world. So, St. Ephraim and St. Leo agree that the disciples needed to see this. Maybe not all of them, but at least the three who were closest to Jesus. They needed to see this vision of Jesus so that when Jesus accomplished what he was about to in Jerusalem, they wouldn't be overthrown with grief. They would have this memory holding on to this memory of the glory of Jesus, even in the midst of their um, confusion over that one horrible night after Jesus' crucifixion. It would sustain them. So, Jesus, willingly, for his good pleasure, is doing this for the salvation of the world. Why, though, is this necessary beyond to help the disciples uh, before Jesus goes to Jerusalem. Well, again, this pattern isn't something brand new, but it's something we've seen before. And we get the clue about this from the two people who meet Jesus on the mountain, Moses and Elijah. We see this pattern happening with both of them. Moses and Elijah both fasted 40 days and 40 nights. They both went up the mountain of Sinai, also called Horeb, And encountered God there through a cloud of glory, lightnings and thunder, and what looked like from the Israelites standing at the base of the mountain, a a big storm and something, you know, earthquake and the mountain was shaking. And so, you know, there's storm and lightning and cloud, at least from the outside perspective. But once you're inside it, as Elijah found out, God wasn't in the earthquake or the fire or the storm. God was there speaking. In a still small voice. And it was through that voice that Elijah talked with God and Moses met with God face to face. And both of them had this encounter with God before going off on their missions Moses to the Israelites uh, after having just come out of Egypt in the Exodus, Elijah going to anoint some kings. Uh, to set some things in motion, so that basically all of Israel will be destroyed except for a remnant. So Moses, by bringing the law; Elijah, by anointing some kings, were both going off to um, set things in motion for the salvation of Israel. Now, both of their missions were short-term missions. They were imperfect. They didn't. They didn't fully save the people, but it did establish this pattern. God. Brings someone important up to meet with him and then send them off onto a mission. And here we see Jesus talking with the two men where this has already happened to, so that he can fulfill this pattern. He, Jesus, is God. He reveals his divine glory in his transfiguration and meets with the two men. I, you know, they're talking to Jesus about his transfiguration, but I'm not, this is not a hill I'm going to die on. But we do believe in, uh, you know, kind of the folding over of time, the meeting of, the the remembrance of things. When we participate in the Eucharist, we are participating in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. We're not re-sacrificing Christ. We're meeting him in his sacrifice. And we see that God can work through time by making different moments in time meet and come together. And I almost wonder if both Moses and, Uh, in Sinai and Elijah at their own separate times were uh, reaching forward in time and actually meeting Christ. Anyway, who knows? I don't know if any church fathers or anyone that says that it's just, uh, it's, it's a, it's an interesting thing to think about, but regardless, there's, there's so much that we're seeing here because Moses died. Elijah did not. He was taken up in a chariot of fire uh, into paradise So Jesus is here meeting with the representatives, the the two most important figures summing up death and life. Here is the God of both death and life, and he is about to go to Jerusalem to accomplish what? The proof that he is the God over death and life. And so in his proving that he reigns over death and life, he uh, accomplishes for us what we never could accomplish. Last week, Father Ben in his homily was talking about how Jesus in the desert, again, was participating in the story of Israel and Exodus by doing what they never could do. In 40 years, they failed to live up to what God was calling them to. And in 40 days, Jesus accomplished this. In his 40-day fast. So why is the story here in Lent? Because of all these beautiful connections, us in the middle of our 40 days of fasting, um, following the pattern that Jesus did, which was actually the fulfillment of a pattern, going back to Moses in his fast, and then the Israelites wandering of 40 years, Elijah in his fast, and now this meeting on the mountain in order to um, show us the, the kicking off, the beginning of Jesus' mission in Jerusalem, which we are now following him into. Remember the context. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you have to take up your cross. And so we're also going to Jerusalem with him. So that's why it's here. That's the Linton context. And that main purpose is for us to remind us, like James, John, and Peter, the glory of the Lord so that we know it is our God who is going to die. It's not just the man Jesus. It's not just uh, uh, the the Messiah of Israel. He is fully human. He is the Messiah, but he is our God. We see that in his glory that he reveals. So this is the the foremost object, according to St. Leo. But St. Leo goes on and he says there is a second object of the transfiguration. He says, with no less foresight, the foundation was laid of the Holy Church's hope that the whole body of Christ might realize the character of the change which it would have to receive, and that the members might promise themselves a share in that honor which had already shown forth in their head. So St. Leo is saying the second main object of the Transfiguration is to show us what is in store for us who have a share in our head. He continues, about which the Lord had himself said when he spoke of the majesty of his coming, then shall the righteous shine as the sun in their father's kingdom. So Jesus says the righteous shall shine like the sun, as Jesus is described as shining like the sun. Whilst the blessed apostle Paul bears witness of the self same thing and says, for I reckon that the sufferings in this life are not worthy to be compared with the future glory which shall be revealed in us. So Jesus is said to shine in glory in this story. St. Paul says that same glory will be revealed in us. And again he says, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. For when Christ our life shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. So from Jesus' own words and the words of the Apostle Paul, We hear that we are to share in the glory of Christ, the same glory that he shows us in the transfiguration. So the second main object of this story, the transfiguration, is to demonstrate that the humanity which God puts on in the incarnation is capable of bearing the glory of God. When God put on humanity in his incarnation, he didn't do away with his divine glory. It just wasn't always revealed. But when he chose to, he let that glory shine forth, showing us that in the incarnation, divine glory and humanity come together perfectly. One doesn't either outshine and destroy the other. The divinity doesn't destroy the humanity, but the humanity doesn't cover up the glory either. Both work together. Now, we as mere humans, only little children in our participation in Christ aren't shining with glory. At least I'm not. I'm not going to presume to say that none of you have shone with the uncreated light of God at some point this week. You may have. Uh, I probably wouldn't be able to perceive it because I know for myself that I'm not holy enough for that. But each and every one of us has the potential to shine with the glory of God. That's not just a That's not something that is, you know, just a pious way of speaking. Like, this is reality. This is real stuff. We really believe this. As Orthodox Christians, we believe that human beings can shine with the glory of God. In fact, not only Christ, but other human beings have shone with the glory of God. We have accounts of saints throughout church history who have shone with light. The divine glory shining out of them, just like it did in Christ here. So this is actually the point of salvation. I'm a big picture thinker. I like to think of uh, things sort of in a hierarchical fashion, uh, from the, the top down. What's the point of the small stuff if you don't know how it fits within the bigger picture, right? So I like to start with the 30,000-foot view to get a perspective and then work my way down and see how everything fits together. That's how I, I, I do work. It's how I... Uh, read books. It's how I think of concepts. I like the big picture. And for us as Christians, no, for us as humans, this is the biggest picture there is. Why are we here today? Why are we doing any of this? Why are we here to worship? What's the point of uh, salvation? What's the point of all of this? In fact, what's the point of life? What is the meaning of life? What is this all about? This is what it's all about. It is participation in God through love. That's what it's all about. That's what everything is about. What is the point of salvation? I know some Christians whose theology, anyway, is essentially the point of salvation is not to go to hell because hell is awful and you don't want to go there, so... Let's get on the right side of God and and do whatever uh, the system God has set up for us. Let's let's do that, whether it be, say, a sinner's prayer or something like that, and make sure that we're saved so that we don't go to hell. That is such a pathetic uh, idea of salvation. Some some Christians slightly more rightly think, well, no, actually, the point of salvation uh, isn't just to not go to hell. It's to go to heaven because heaven is going to be so great. Well, That's also not the point of salvation. I mean, you know, heaven will get thrown in uh, because uh, heaven is good and, and God loves us and everything, but that's not the point of salvation. The point of salvation, like the office hymn that we're going to sing in a little while, says, is not for the sake of winning heaven. It's not for any fear of hell. But as God has loved us, So, we are to love God. The point of salvation is love that unites, that brings together two into one. That is, that's it. Stop, full stop. That's the point of salvation, is to be so united with God in love that we shine with his divine life. So, what Jesus is going to accomplish is the unifying of man and God. When he climbs onto the cross and joins himself to his church, that is what he is accomplishing for us. But he shows us in a pre-taste today what it will look like when he unites us to himself so that we can shine with his divine glory, shine with his light because we share his life. That's what this story is all about. Again, there's so much more to explore in terms of uh, you know, Old Testament patterns and what we're seeing in this story, but I want to leave us on the high note of the central point of all of life, all of worship, all of love. It's as creatures to be joined with our Creator in love and participatory life so that we become more and more Him. Christ accomplished this in his incarnation, in his death and resurrection and ascension, but he accomplished it also in his transfiguration by showing us, by lighting up our human flesh so that our human flesh, in participating in him, we're, we're light bulbs. We're built for this. We're just not turned on all the way. Our dimmer is too low. So let's continue for all of our lives, growing in love with him so that his light will shine more and more and more in us. And we become more and more electrified, uh, enlivened with God's self-giving love, creative action and power. That's why we're here. If that sounds um, unattainable or too good to be true or beyond any of our scope, well, it's true. As we heard, with, God, uh, with man, all this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And God wills this for us. Maybe in this lifetime. But if not, don't worry. Because this lifetime isn't all that there is. We've got eons, ages of ages, world without end, to grow in love and participation with God. This is our end, our telos. This is what we were created for nothing else i mean everything else that's good will be thrown in again but this is the main aim this is the top the pinnacle of our purpose so keep that in mind as we move farther into lent as the light fades as we come down off of tabor and go back into this week and next week and the week after the world will come in on us again um Evil and wicked people will lay their hands on us, even if not physically, at least on our spirits and our minds, and we will be troubled. Holy Week will happen, and we will see the lights extinguished. But then that light will break through the darkness again, and it will grow and grow and grow, hopefully in our hearts continually, until we are fully transfigured with Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. The talks at Advent homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.